Welcome, friends. I'm Sarah Ann Stewart, and this is the Awesome Inside Out Podcast. Now, I'm not sure how you ended up here today, but I want to welcome you with open arms. Because while our paths may be different, I'm going to take a wild guess that we share one common desire to have a deeply fulfilling, extraordinary life in a body that we love. A life free of diets, free from guilt, and free from shame. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into mindset shifts that give you the power to decide how you feel, not the media, not your past, and not social conditioning. Then you'll discover how to use this inspiration and this new sense of confidence to be the best you, the you that you are meant to be. So get ready, my friend. It is time to get awesome inside out. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Awesome Inside Out podcast. Today, you're in for an enlightening episode. If you've been following along for a while, you know my belief that meditation and mindfulness are non-negotiable practices for food and body freedom. Why? It's simple. The way to shift your thought patterns, your behaviors, and ultimately find healing with your relationship with your body is through awareness and repatterning the subconscious mind. That's what meditation does. And that's why I'm so grateful to be able to have this amazing special guest, my dear friend and certified meditation instructor, Dina Kaplan, on the show. Dina is the founder of The Path, which has taught thousands of individuals across the world to meditate. She has studied and practiced dozens of meditation techniques. And before founding The Path, Dina was the COO of the tech startup Blip TV. Before Blip, Dina was an Emmy award-winning television news reporter, worked as an associate producer for MTV News, and at the White House as a director of research. She was named one of Fortune Magazine's most powerful women entrepreneurs and Fast Company's most influential women of the web. She has a column about meditation for entrepreneurs on Forbes.com and has written for dozens of magazines and publications such as the New York Times, Today.com, Marie Claire, the list goes on and on. In short, she has a wealth of wisdom when it comes to turning debilitating fear, anxiety, and stress into inner peace. So if you're up against any big fears right now in your health journey, or if you're curious or even skeptical about how meditation can help you, I know you're going to absolutely love learning from her. Let's meet her now. All right, all right, all right. We're back for another episode of the Awesome Inside Out podcast. I am here with one of my best friends on the planet, Dina Kaplan. She is in LA. It's such a treat to have you on the West Coast. We're always like crossing paths around the world. So, so great to actually be in your presence today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be in LA and even better to see and get to hang with you. I know. So exciting. So some background. My husband and I did an event probably, when was that? Six months ago? and we, about a year it, ago. Yeah. And I interviewed you for 150 entrepreneurs that were sitting in my living room at the time. And they were just so blown away by your story. I was like, I have to have you back. All these entrepreneurs were asking me about the work you do and the meditation and the company you run called The Path. And so I was like, I have to have you back and share the same story. I'm sorry you have to repeat it. but An honor and a privilege only for you. I would love for you to share your story the pieces of it that really have defined the work that you do today and just drop into what has brought you to becoming a top meditation teacher, traveling around the world, educating people about mindfulness and why it's so important. 
No, I'm definitely happy to share it. God, I almost said this unironically. It's been a path. It's definitely been a journey. I think about where I was even, not a few years ago, I guess it's more like seven years ago or eight years ago, but it was in such a different place. And you know this. It's actually right before we met. I had co-founded and was helping to run a pretty fast-scaling tech startup, and it was in the web video space. So we were kind of like an early version of YouTube where we had this big platform, kind of like a network for people building up an audience for an original online web show, although people didn't know what a web show was at the time. So it was very early in online video and everything felt really exciting. It was everything. My life became everything that an entrepreneur dreams of. And after just a few years, we'd raised tens of millions of dollars. We ended up raising $35 million in venture capital money We had this big team across the country with offices in Chicago, LA, San Francisco, headquarters in New York, people working with us in Australia and London. And all that looked great. My life especially looked fabulous from the outside. I was named Fortune Most Powerful Women Entrepreneur. I was named a top 10 women of the web 2.0. It was just me and Ariana Huffington were the only ones from New York. And everything just looked really great. But what's funny is that I only share that because On the inside, it was a really different story. And I didn't share this with anyone, not my best friend, my doctor, my parents who I was really close with, and even my co-founders, but I was a basket case. And I didn't really, in the end, it came down to, I didn't have the confidence to speak up for myself. And I was drowning. It's funny, not in the operations of the company. I kind of figured out my job. I'm not going to say I was the best in the world at that, but I was pretty good at that. But what I didn't know how to do was to be myself in that role. I was one of very few tech founders that were female in the country at the time. In fact, I was the only one that I knew of in the U.S. There was Katerina Fake from Flickr at the time based out of Canada, and she's awesome, but I didn't know her very well. And I really had no role models to look up to. And I thought, you know, all these successful tech founders are all guys, whether it's Peter Thiel from PayPal, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, they're all guys. So I guess in order to be successful, I need to act like a guy. Well, I didn't really know what that meant, but I thought it meant to work all the time and be really tough. So I just started working all the time and I became really tough and completely lost my personality. And it ended up manifesting into panic attacks. I think you know about those for better or for worse in your community, probably familiar, have heard of it. But At the height of one, it's terrifying. You feel faint. I would feel dizzy. I would feel like I was about to pass out. And I started having them constantly. The company was based out of New York. I was living in New York. And I lived in fear of passing out in the middle of a New York City intersection. And then this was both vain and macabre at the same time. So maybe you guys can laugh along with me. But my biggest fear is that I was going to walk across a New York City intersection, have a panic attack pass out in the middle of the street and then a cab would roll over me. So I wouldn't even look good for the funeral. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What a horrible fear. And I'm laughing because that's like in my reality, like state of reality. I've had so many panic attacks in my life. So. Oh, oh, all right. I actually didn't really know that about you. Yeah. It's both vain and ridiculous and very morbid at the same time. But basically all of this. So what's amazing is that I didn't speak up even about this. So I didn't tell anyone about it. And I'm running this company that looks really great from the outside. And again, my life looks great. And one day I'm standing at this intersection at Broom and Lafayette in downtown Manhattan in Soho. I just have to cross two intersections to get to my office, one south and then one to the east. It was probably a 13 or 14 second walk. But I remember leaning against a utility pole and just praying that the light wouldn't turn green because I didn't think I could make it to the other side in one piece. 
And in that moment, it was like this voice of intuition came to me. And we can talk about intuition if you want in a little bit, because I'm a big believer in listening to it and opening up the channel so that it comes to you. I actually think this intuition probably saved me. And it said, you've got to get out of here. You need to lead the exact opposite life in the exact opposite place. And you need to take action right away, which was a big wow, because I was listening to anything but my intuition. It was just all about making more money, scaling the company, doing well by our investors. Those are my only thoughts are basically all centered around the gross margin of the company, which is basically the profitability of the company. And all of a sudden, this intuition came to me. And I knew I had to follow it. It wasn't like, should I or shouldn't I? It was just, all right, how soon can I talk to the board? And how soon can I talk to my co-founders? And as events happened, I very quickly turned to my family (laughs) to ask them if they would support me. We hadn't taken any money off the table, so I was just living off a startup salary. I said, will you support me if I leave the company? To which they said, do you have anything else in your life? And I'm like, well, it's time to find out. But I ended up doing a transition with the board pretty quickly. And then I booked a one-way flight to Bali with a little bit of a smile and a nod to the cliche, because I still had a sense of humor. (laughs) That I've always maintained. But I said, you know what? I'm just going to book a one-way flight to Bali, go with the cliche, book the flight, and I flew six days later, and I left everything behind. And then you were traveling for, was it two years? Yeah. So I thought my friends, I did a goodbye party, and my friends in New York, they took a poll Half the people thought I wouldn't get on the flight the next morning. And the other half said she'll be back within two weeks starting another company. But my that two-week trip turned into two months, which ended up turning into two and a half years. And everything about my life changed during that trip. Wow. And then while you were traveling, that was when you really started diving into the mindfulness piece. And yeah. The so that's actually a funny story unto itself. So I started just actually ticking off countries. Like I had been ticking off conference calls and meetings for all the years running the startup. So I went to first Bali with a sense of humor and then Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Thailand, Bhutan, Myanmar. So crisscrossing across Asia and having a lot of fun, but still kind of leading this somewhat manic lifestyle, similar to what the way I'd been running the startup. I didn't slow down. I just, rather than conference calls, I was sort of seeing all the beaches that I could find throughout Asia. And then what happened is that one day I went from Bhutan and Myanmar and then landed in India. And I was a little scared about going to India because you hear about people getting sick and it's just sort of troubles of being a woman traveling on your own in India. So I was a little nervous. And as I was walking off the plane, there was a really cute fellow traveler who was from Northern Europe, who cute guy who said, hey, what are your plans? And I said, I don't really have any plans. I'm a little afraid to be here by myself. And he said, oh, I'm going on a retreat. Do you want to come with me? So I think he's asking me on a date. Now, this turns out to be the worst date in the history of humanity because It was a gender-segregated, silent meditation retreat. And what he didn't mention, which I didn't know until I got there, because I said, sure, that sounds great. I think I'm going on a date. So it turns out not only is it gender-segregated and silent, that part I knew, but you're not allowed to make eye contact with anyone. You're not allowed to gesture to anyone. And what nobody mentioned is that there was no soap, no toilet paper, and it was going to be 110 degrees or 40 Celsius if your audience is abroad. And no air conditioning at all. So hotter inside than outside. So this seemed like a really bad date. I felt like I need to get out of here, but there was no way to leave. There were no tut-tuts, buses, cars, Ubers, nothing. And what happened is that 
this retreat ended up changing my life and ended up leading to the founding of the path. So on day eight, I had this huge revelation. It was like a string from Dumbledore's Ponceve, if anyone's into Harry Potter. But this memory came to me that I'd never thought about before of being bullied really badly as a little kid in summer camp. And at the end of that summer, I think I was nine years old, I made a vow to myself and I said, I'm never going to be the reject again. For the rest of my life, I'm going to hone my social skills so finely that I'll always be popular. And then I did. But the problem is that it was at the expense of ever saying what was on my mind. And this is actually what hurt me in running the startup. So the minute this memory came to me, it was like I could see a jigsaw puzzle of my personality. And I could see me as a little girl putting in that piece that was popularity into the puzzle of my personality. But now, eight days into meditating, 10 hours a day, so 87 hours into meditation, my mind was so sharp, I had the ability to take out that piece and that I could see myself in modern times putting in a new piece that was just having the confidence to be myself. I guess you could say authenticity. And the minute I did that, it was like this flash of lightning ran from my foot all the way up through my legs, through my torso, and exploded above my head. And a second voice of intuition spoke to me. And it said, you're going to come out of this retreat a better person. And everyone should have the chance to do this. But it doesn't need to be this hard with the no soap, the no toilet paper. So this voice said, when you're ready to come back to the United States, you're going to start a company. You're going to call it The Path, and you'll be part of the movement that pushes meditation to the mainstream because you'll do meditations that are beautiful and fun, dare we say sexy, and you will be part of this movement of meditation where it's not just done by people that have crystals in their bras or by their bedstands, but powerful entrepreneurs, that world that I was pretty familiar with from my last role. Basically, this voice said, yeah, you'll be part of the movement that really pushes meditation truly into mainstream America and around the world. And it's funny, I opened my eyes, there's 200 people around me, most of them Indian, all still meditating. And I wanted to scream or shout that I'd found my mission in life, but there was no one to tell, but I knew exactly what my life was going to be dedicating to. That's amazing. I hadn't heard that part of the story, so that's incredible. And then you started studying meditation under different so, yeah, practices, I knew right? that in order to do this with some level of authenticity, I really knew almost nothing about meditation, but I knew I'd have to partner with someone who knew a lot about meditation. I would have to start studying. So yeah, I ended up traveling all around the world with different gurus, different ashrams, all sorts of different styles of meditation. And when I felt like I knew enough to legitimately start the company, and when I had the idea for the company come to me in another moment of inspiration, I did spend two more years studying and traveling. And when I was ready, I flew back to the US and launched The Path one month later. Wow. And The Path, I love the approach of The Path because I'm a huge believer of different types of meditation. And I love the idea that, you know, a lot of times we become very dogmatic in one approach and then that's the only way, and this is the way to enlightenment. And so I would love to hear a little bit about how you came up with the process that you teach at The Path and really what you're teaching to the entrepreneurs and the people that I feel need it just as much, right, as the people who are aware and meditate every day. I think they actually need it more so most oh, of the yeah, time. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, I will credit this idea to, in part to my co-founder, Charlie Knowles, who's just an absolute genius and longtime meditation teacher and has been meditating since he was four years old. And he said, we can put these into four categories. There's mindfulness, which probably a lot of people in your community are familiar with. Usually you're focusing on one object. It could be the breath. It could be body sensations. It could be a candle. But 
Mindfulness is really good at training the mind to be focused. And it's also really good at stress relief. So that's one category. Another category is mantra meditation. Some people might call it Vedic or TM or transcendental meditation. So this is a meditation in which you're focusing on a word. It's usually a Sanskrit word. You might not even know the definition, but you're gently repeating this word in your mind's eye just silently to yourself. And that helps to wrap the left side of the brain, the planning mind that a lot of us are good at optimizing for into a bit of a loop. So it lets the right side of the brain, the creative side foster. And mantra meditation is really good at promoting creativity and also releasing stress. A third type of meditation is an energizing meditation. So you've probably done this in yoga class. It could be alternate side nostril breathing, pranayama, could be a kriya. So these are all ways of bringing natural energy into the body. And a fourth type of meditation is a meditation to help accomplish a goal. So that most often is compassion, but it could be gratitude. It could even be power. It could be meditation to manifest a particular goal that you want in your personal or professional life. So these are four really different categories, different techniques of meditation. And when I'm teaching or when the path is teaching someone who's open, if they just want to learn mindfulness, we'll teach them that. But if they're open, I love teaching with two or three or even all four types of meditation, even in one sitting, could all be done in 45 minutes. And then let someone choose like, okay, this is the right path for me. Or it might be that if I have a day where I need to be really focused, you need to work on a Excel document or something that really requires the focus of your mind, mindfulness might be right that day. But if another day you want to be more creative, even if it's a creative solution to a business problem or something in your personal life, you might want to do the mantra meditation. So these are all tools in your toolkit that you can access. And you did ask the how. So I'll quickly say one of the reasons I thought about studying these different types is that that first retreat I did, which was a Gwenka Vipassana, a very strict type of mindfulness meditation, he actually referenced in one of his talks in the evening, we would have these talks. And he said, don't try that mantra meditation. You might've heard about that, but that's not the right way. So I was, my curiosity was piqued. And so I next went to go study that mantra meditation. But it's funny because the guru that taught me that said, by the way, don't do that mindfulness meditation unless you're really drawn to it. Because if you do that too much, you could end up kind of boring. <laughs> but it's funny, you know, all these different techniques have the, the pros and cons of the other ones. I think it's nice to know all of them and then just choose for yourself what's best. Yeah. And they each rewire different parts of the brain, right? And I don't know the specific which ones wire different things, but I do know that different meditations rewire the part of your brain that is more compassionate or loving or the part that maybe potentially has an addictive personality or that handles stress differently. And so there's these different meditations. And so I always recommend, I'm just a believer in doing them all. I think it's yeah. important. To I mean, in fact, in the early days of the path, for the first few months of the path, every single meditation we did incorporated all four. So we would do all four in one hour. And afterwards, people would walk out and feel unbelievable, like completely blissed out. It was extraordinary. So when I'm guiding, I'll usually do three out of the four. I might just pick the three that I feel most drawn to and teach those. And yeah, you feel really good when you're rewiring all these different parts of your mind. So yeah, it's wonderful. It's incredible. I wanted to go back to the part where you were talking about the story that you held from your childhood about the underlying current was people-pleasing. Yeah. Well, basically what I decided as a little nine-year-old Dina was that I wasn't good enough as myself, right? Because I'd been rejected and bullied so badly in summer camp. So let me just be pleasing to other people and popular 
and then I'll have a much better life. And that ended up being ingrained so hard into my personality. It's funny, I think of my personalities as like grooves on a record. And as we continue doing behavior or tell ourselves a certain story, those grooves become deeper. I do think that we can smooth out those grooves and climb over them and create new ones. But it's a big process to do that. I've done that. I've done that for about seven or eight different patterns in my personality. And I'm a big believer that we can change. And we know the neuroscience is there telling us that neuroplasticity exists. So we can change. It's not easy, but it can be done. Hey there, are you loving this podcast? Well, a simple way to support is to head over to sarahandstuart.com and join the newsletter. Doing this ensures that you are never going to miss out on any details of new projects, products, upcoming events, or behind the scenes stuff that I only share with my inner circle. Also by joining, you're going to get access to the movement, which means you are part of a free community of individuals standing in their power to live a diet-free life in a body that they love. So head on over to sarahandstuart.com and subscribe, and I'll see you on the inside. And what was the process for you in order to shift that? Because I know that People pleasing is probably, or even just, I have to become someone I'm not, or I have to show something that I'm not to the rest of the world. Probably in my coaching practice is the number one reason that sets people back because they're not standing in their truth. They're not standing in their, even the ability to be selfish and take care of their own well-being. They're doing everything for everyone else to showcase an image of themselves that isn't actually accurate to their own but that True. never happens in LA, right? No, no, I just joke. <laughs> no, and never in LA. <laughs> well, in a 30 mile radius. No, never. So, you know, let's name it, right? In the end, it's fear, right? Because it's fear to be yourself. It's fear that you're not good enough, fear that you're not worthy of other people's attention or affection or love. So if we call it fear, I'll own that I had a lot of fear. I mean, I had a lot of fear in my entire adult life until that retreat in India. And, you know, I still carry some now. But if we can call it what it is, which in the end is fear, I can explain my process for climbing out of that groove and starting to make a little imprint on a new groove called fearlessness. So for me, what I wanted to know, and this is, I'm on my trip. I'm not sitting in a research institution at the University of Wisconsin or anywhere, any academic environment. I wanted to know, can we change our patterns? And so I actually decided to start with something really small. And you might laugh at this and you can laugh because it is a little bit funny, but I've always had the same taste in things. I have certain political parties that I like to vote for and I have a certain ice cream flavor that I would just always order because I figured that's what I like. So for example, my ice cream flavor was always coffee and I never got the pistachio people. I just didn't get it. Who would ever want pistachio ice cream? So as I began this thinking about, can we change our patterns? I actually walked in with a friend to an ice cream shop and we had made a deal to both order a flavor that we didn't get. So I ordered it, tried it and I thought, you know what? This is actually kind of awesome. Like, I can't believe I'm not trying the coffee, but I kind of love it. It sounds so small, but by questioning my taste that I had had literally my entire life and actually deciding that this other one was good, by the way, I order pistachio all the time now and still coffee every now and then, but I actually probably order pistachio more than coffee. It showed me that I might be wrong, that I can make even small changes in my taste and in my personality. So what I next decided to do was to see if I overcame certain things that I thought I would never do because they were just too scary. If I started to overcome fear, in other words, 
physical fears, could I eventually overcome my biggest fear of all, which was this internal fear of speaking up for myself, of just saying what was on my mind rather than what would be pleasing to the people that I was with. So like everything, I attacked this with absolute gusto. At the moment that I first wondered about this, it's funny, it happened to come to me when I was walking down a little path on the beautiful Thai island of Koh Tao, so one of the beautiful islands on the eastern side of Thailand. And it happened to be the scuba capital of Asia. So this is the place more than any other place in Asia where people get their scuba certificates. And scuba diving happened to be one of my biggest physical fears. Someone had died on my first scuba diving trip as a kid when I went with my family, someone that I knew. Like we all went in and the dad of this other family literally never came up. And I just came out of that and said, you know what? Fine. I'm just never going to go scuba diving. Like clearly I wasn't meant to scuba dive. But at this moment, I decided I wanted to try to overcome things and make real changes in my personality more than the flavor of an ice cream. Uh, and the fact that this inspiration came on Kotal was a signal to me that I need to try this. So I went into a scuba shop and I said to them, hey guys, A, someone died on my first scuba diving trip as a kid. B, I'm kind of having issues breathing above ground and I'm having a lot of panic attacks, but I'd like to try diving. So they looked at me and they laughed and they said, can you pay? And I said, yeah, I can pay. And they said, come back tomorrow and we'll do a discovery dive with you. I went back the next day and I was terrified, but I was lucky. I got a cute instructor from Britain. I asked if he would hold my hand as we went under the water and he did. And I did it. And I went scuba diving. It was something I just never thought I would do for the rest of my life. I'd written it off and I came out and I was different. I came out, I literally looked different. The people that I knew there said, wow, there's something changed about you. It's something like my confidence had grown so much. And more than that, I'm getting chills, actually. I'm getting tingles. I can feel them through my entire body as I even retell this story. It was the first real sign to me that I could make real changes in my life and that I was onto something. So I went from there to my other big fear was zip lining. I moved into this treehouse in northern Laos where you could only get home by zip lining. I moved into this crazy treehouse about 50 meters above the ground. So I had to zip line to get out to get food and zip line to go to sleep at night. I'm actually still not sure that was really safe, but I lived there for a little bit and checked off zip lining. And then I had another huge one, which was bungee jumping. I went to Queenstown, New Zealand, which is the home of the first ever, the most famous bungee jump in the world. And I went to the bridge, which is the first bungee jump that I think people know of in Queenstown. And it's funny, I went with a group of friends. They all got weighed and went. I weighed and then hid in the bathroom for an hour, staring at a roll of toilet paper, wondering why I'd never before appreciated how those rolls are always the same size with the same diameter of the cardboard. Like I thought like, wow, I'm going to die never having, I want to appreciate toilet paper and like all these little things that you never think of are part of our daily life. So I finally go out to the bridge. It's been an hour and I don't trust one guy to check my harness. So another guy comes and then the manager comes and they just shut the whole place down because they're actually not allowed to push you and I'm too afraid to jump. So the owner comes over and he checks and I'm still truly, as I tell you this story, honestly, 40% of me to 50% thought I was going to die truly in doing this. But I pushed my toes over the edge of the bridge and I just made a decision. I made a decision not for my friends who had been waiting for me for ages or for the employees who were so annoyed at me, but I actually made the decision that I no longer wanted to live with so much fear. So I did this beautiful swan dive with the perfectly pointed toes and fingertips in case this was the last photo of me ever taken in my life. It is a great photo. <laughs> but I did, I felt the pull of the bungee. And when I knew I'd survived, I just started bawling. Again, I'm getting the tingles as I tell you this story. And so I survived the dive. I got the great photo. 
and I posted on Facebook a few minutes later that I'm finally ready to come back to the U.S. and I've decided to live a life where courage is more important than fear. Wow. But the biggest test of all was, could I now have the confidence to overcome what was my biggest fear, which was just to be myself? And that's a continual process. It is. And it takes every moment standing in the courage, right? Because it's so easy to retreat back, especially when it comes to just living our truth. And there's a million different stories, media, social conditioning, parent, like everything is bombarding us at all times. Do you find that meditation has helped you live into that truth more and more, like as you become disconnected from everything and you're connecting to yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think first of all, with meditation, for better or for worse, my best friend and I are always like, wow, we were so much happier just living in ignorance, like my best friend from growing up. (laughs) We were like, well, we used to like go out at 21 and stay out all night dancing. We're like, we're so happy. We probably pissed off all sorts of people. I have no idea who or what, but it was sort of like ignorance is bliss. So meditation, for better or worse, shows you your patterns. So you at least know what you need to work on. And then I would say, absolutely, it helps. I think this is different. This overcoming fear is just that choice, but meditation gives you the power and the ability to see that choice. So what happens now is, so I meditate a lot, And what it's done for me is that when anything happens during the day, if I've meditated that morning, it's a practice, so you really have to do it every day for it to work, quote unquote. But when I'm doing it regularly, if I've meditated that day and something happens, whatever it is, but someone acts badly, a stranger, a friend, whatever it is, I have this pause. And in that pause, I see the very clear ability to, if someone acts, let's say, badly to me or they're mean to me, I can be mean back. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. Or I can just shrug my shoulders and smile and move on and not let it bother me. Or I also have the option to actually just act with love. Mm -hmm. So let's say someone is nasty to you or does something terrible. I still have that power because of meditation to think, wow, they're acting badly, but it has nothing to do with me. It might be because of something tough that happened in their own background, or maybe they had a bad day or a fight with their husband or wife or just someone in their life that morning. And so I have that choice to choose to act with love. And I love having that pause. Yeah. For me, it's created more space. So it's allowed me to become less reactive and triggered. And when I do get triggered, I've been able to, instead of reacting from an emotional space, take a step back and then become very clear and grounded in my experience of like, what is the most desirable choice in this moment from my own truth? And from that, I can then make the choice. And I think that that, for me, has given me so much confidence. It's given me confidence. It's given me courage. It's given me the space to really say, okay, I can go out into the world and not live in that fear, right? Of like, I don't know how I'm going to respond or react to different experiences. So I love that. I think as big as meditation has gotten, and I've seen your company blow up like crazy and expand and expand around the world and all these different coasts, I still feel like so many people that should be meditating are meditating. I mean, I believe that everyone should be meditating, so I'm a little bit biased. But what are the misconceptions and why do you feel like people are still a little bit thrown off or scared or reluctant to start this process? Yeah, I think people are. And I think especially, let's take one segment, very high achieving people Or actually, let's just say anyone that has something that you do that you love, it could actually be even an art. You feel like 
you might have a bit of mishigas, like some sort of messiness going on in your mind, but you need that in order to do the sculptures that you do or the paintings or the writing or to run your company. What you do becomes a custom. It's that deep groove on the record, actually. And the idea of looking at how you act and why that you act the way that you do, of course, it's super scary. I just came out of a seven-day silent retreat in which you cannot escape yourself. And so I think meditation is scary because it becomes a mirror to you. You start to see your patterns and then it gives you the power to actually say, do I want to continue with this pattern? For me, one of them was people-pleasing. Do I want to continue with this or do I actually want to try to work on it? Now, if I'm going to work on it, that's a lot of work, right? I mean, I forget had to jump off a bridge and move into this treehouse. Like, there's a lot of work. And so I think that's why people are afraid is number one, they're afraid to face themselves. And that's legitimate. I think the other thing is people perceive that they have, quote unquote, no time. Now, I love to question people on this and they do not love it when I do it. But it's funny, you might have someone that goes to yoga, maybe every day, or maybe they go to the gym every day. Let's take someone that goes to the gym every day for an hour. I mean, is it possible that they could go for 55 minutes and meditate for five minutes? Probably yes. Or if you're going to yoga every day, which is an hour and a half class, and it takes you 20 minutes to change and five minutes to walk or drive there. I mean, you have time. If you ever look at Facebook, you have time, but it's putting in a new pattern. So I do think in the end, even if it's scary, like my responses to those two reasons not to do it would be, A, if you're high functioning, meditation will only make you higher functioning. And B, if you think you don't have time, I mean, look, if you have small kids or you have a tough commute or you're holding multiple jobs and really working on making ends meet, I totally get it. You are legitimate. You are legitimately busy. But for many other people, if you're looking at Instagram more than once a day, if you're looking at Facebook more than once a day, if you're spending all of your workout time on the physical body and not the mental body, you probably have one or two or five or even 10 minutes to meditate. Yeah. And it impacts us indirectly to make better choices with our food and our movement and all of the things. So it's actually as much as we're saying, well, what's happening? I'm sitting there doing nothing. This isn't productive. It's actually making us, us more productive. I was mind blown when I got the, those apps that tell you how long you're spending on social media. It was shocking to me. I, had, I shut everything down for a couple of weeks because I was like, how am I spending 40 minutes on Instagram? Like that's just for an a day. Like to me, it feels very much, I'm not judging, but to me, it felt very much in my truth, oh, too much of my time spent looking at what other people were doing and not enough time going in and looking within, right? And so that's just a normal day of just being on social media for 40 minutes. It's crazy. Wow. I need to get those apps. But I would also say for the people that are really focused on the physical body, and look, I mean, we both are in good shape. I run every single day. I do yoga every single day. So I don't let the physical body go. We're both really into nutrition, obviously. But look, meditation is is for the mind, but it also floods the physical body with health. I mean, you know this. It reduces the production of cortisol in the body, the stress hormone. It increases our immunity. It reduces inflammation in all of the key organs, the kidneys, the small intestines, the large intestines. So let's just say you're not focused on the mind. You're only focused on the physical body. I would say meditation is worth it even for that. I mean, you can probably find a way to do a five-minute or three-minute shorter physical workout and get in a few minutes of meditation. Yeah. And I'm curious, 
from the manifesting side, the one piece of the four puzzle where people are like, I want to manifest my dream job and I want to manifest the relationship that I want. And I want to manifest the white picket fence and the finances and all of these things. And they come to you from that place of ego, right? Because I feel like that's what a lot of people are coming to meditation now from that place. When do you see that shift happen? Because meditation is actually breaking down your ego versus to some extent, right? And so I'm just curious if you see that shift happening. And because I think a lot of people are getting into meditation now because they feel like it's a way of manifesting all of these bigger things. Oh, well, I'm actually fine with that. In fact, I just recorded for a great app, Meditation Studio app, Meditation to Manifest Your Dreams. And in fact, the last meditation I guided for the path was on manifesting your dreams. So I actually don't mind why someone comes, even if they're coming to get better at their job and that's it, fine. I don't care what the entry point is. For me, it was panic attacks. Well, and thinking I was going on a date. <laughs> that might be a little unusual, but I don't mind what brings people to meditation. I mean, it works. And I actually do believe, I mean, I do every single morning a meditation to manifest your dreams. Mine is inspired by an incredible book by James Doty, which is called Into the Magic Shop. And he guides you through a four-step process. I do this in the meditation I guided, so we can put a link if you want after this podcast. But I'm a huge believer in meditation, helping people to manifest their dreams. I think it's a little bit of a trick of the universe. And part of it is, a little sneak preview, is that if you really start believing and see your life with this goal already having been manifested, I think you can help make it happen. It might just be that you are looking out for signals. You're looking out for things along the way in the path of your day that will help to manifest it. But even just having that optimism and looking out for, oh, this is going to help me, really believing that it's going to happen, that might be it. I'm actually not sure. I don't really care why it works, but I actually am a big believer in it. That's amazing. Yeah. And I also think because we're breaking down our detachment to it, when you're detached from it and you're completely present in the moment in which you're meditating, it's actually easier for the universe to bring it to us, which is so cool and so fun. It's so cool. Yeah, I have no problem with people using meditation to manifest your dreams. I'm glad that people have dreams. Let's make them possible. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is a lot of meditation feels a bit somber, right? And you, if you go on retreats, there are not the path retreats, but there's some other retreats where it feels very serious and very somber. But in the end, the goal is for all of us to be happier. So I think meditation, this is part of what I hope the path does, is that we make it fun to meditate. Like, why not meditate with great people and be social with people after you meditate if you're doing a group meditation? But in the end, it's really all about making us happier. In fact, overcoming all those fears, that adventure that I took around the world to start to overcome fear, all of that is for me to have the confidence to tell other people, here's what I want. And that if I'm not happier at the end of that, then there's really no point. But I want, in the end, do I want everyone to meditate? Like, yeah, I'd love for people to meditate. But in the end, I want people to be happier. I want people to be more confident and I want people to help manifest their dreams. So let's get on it. I love that you've made it sexy. I remember one of the first path events that I went to, I was like, where was, where were we? It was just like, I was like, this is like amazing. All these men in suits and like, it was just like, this is like a sexy event, you know? Oh, totally. Of course, now I just heard about, actually just last week, all of the shenanigans, how we run these very high-end retreats called Mela that are super fun. And I just found out about everything that goes on on Mela after hours. Who knew? You think you're starting a meditation retreat. It turns out maybe we'll have some Mela babies <laughs> coming. But why or should- maybe people are manifesting getting married. Yeah, there you go. On the spot. Yeah, that's why I think it's probably been one of the key components 
for myself in manifesting because I was so attached to the outcome of my life that I was finding external happiness when I got the thing versus connecting and having it within in the moment that then I believe brings it in. So it's incredible. What else are you up to? What are the things that you're currently working on and exciting that people should should hear about? And I will say this in terms of the goals, in Buddhism, we would say it's fine to have the focus on a goal. I have plenty of goals myself, but you want to focus on the end goal. If it's in love, it might be that feeling of being in love, but not picturing the haircut (laughs) of the person and the height and this and that. You want to let the world sort out the details. So that's actually very, very important. So focusing on the emotion that you'll feel behind the experience that you're having. How do I feel? What does it feel like once I'm with whoever it is that I am looking for. But yeah, not to focus on all of the details. That actually will mess things up. That's it. Really amazing. Because when I shifted my vision boards to the emotional vision board, to how I wanted to feel in my body versus the body that I wanted to manifest, because I was cutting out pictures of all these other people. I'm like, I'm never going to have their body. So it's so disconnected from ourselves. But when we focus on the actual emotion behind what we want to feel in our bodies, then we can manifest the food experiences and the movement and the health that actually manifests into that feeling. And so I always tell my clients, like, don't cut out the girl on the runway and like try to manifest her body because she's not you. Actually focus on how you want to feel in your body. Yeah, how does it feel when you look however you want to look, which by the way, might not be the same as how I want to look and that's fine. But how does it feel? Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff, I'm so glad you brought that up around happiness. All of this should be happy. Even looking your best self, that should be happy too. I'm on a pretty strict nutrition plan, as you know, and I now no longer phrase it. I can't have X. You know, it's I choose to eat Y and that's my choice. And that's a very empowering way to be. So in terms of what I'm choosing to focus on in my life, lots of exciting things. I'm working on a book now. So that's very, very, very exciting. I can't wait to share some of these things about overcoming fear and climbing out of those old grooves of our personality and starting to make the indent on the new ones that we do want, which I really do believe in. So I'll be writing about that. I can't wait to share that. I've been teaching all over. I just taught in Azerbaijan. I was living in Italy for the past few months, teaching almost every day there. So I've been teaching all around the world, and that's been incredibly fun and rewarding. But right now, I'm really excited because we're I'm scouting locations for the next Maylove retreat. So I'm really excited for that. It's just a beautiful thing to bring together people and meditate together. There's something about being in a community and having not just one person meditate or two, but having a whole group of people working on being the best version of themselves. So I'm really excited for that. That retreat will be at the end of February, 2020. So that's on my mind too. Amazing. I think being in community and a community of other individuals that are willing to look inward is just so incredible. I remember being very young and learning to meditate and I would go to classes with friends of my mom's, like 40-year-olds, and I was this teenager. And I just remember thinking, oh, it would be so nice when I have a community of friends who all sit together and meditate. And now that's what we do, right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, we're so fun. We're so fun. <laughs> I mean, Friday nights, we're like going to ensemble meditation and doing these fun things. But I also live in LA, so it's quite normal here. But if it's not normal where you are, I definitely recommend starting a community getting things in flow, you're going to potentially put a teacher training online, which would be really incredible. And if 
people want to find out more about your work or come to a class or drop in? I've had friends from around the world drop into your classes in different parts of the world. So where do they find out where those classes are? So you can find out about the path at thepath.com. And if you're interested in the retreat, Mela, it's thepath.com. Actually, you can just find it. It's one of the tabs there. It's either you'll see it on thepath.com or just thepath.com slash Mela apply. And it's a wonderful community of meditators. And I myself, gosh, I've actually not have not been so great on Instagram, <laughs> spending too much time meditating, but I'm just at Dina Kaplan. So you can find me there too. Yeah. But you always respond. So you can message you there and then drop in, have a conversation, talk about meditation, talk about fear people-pleasing, all these amazing things. Thank you so much for being here. I love you so much. I'm so grateful. I love you. Thank you for being part. If anyone has questions too, you can email. My email is dina at thepath.com or just sit at thepath.com. And thank you. It's been so fun. It's been so awesome. I love you. Yeah. All right, guys. That's another episode. Thanks for being here. Tune in. And if you like this episode, please subscribe, like, share, tag me. I'd love, love, love to continue this conversation. Thanks, guys. Wow. I am so thankful for Dina for being here. I loved that episode. I hope you loved it just as much as I did. It amazes me how there is so much to learn about meditation, mindfulness, and the range of benefits it has on our emotional, mental, and physical health. If this episode awakened any desire for you to explore this practice, I invite you this week to schedule some time to begin meditating, explore some local classes, sign up for a workshop, or dive into Dina's work specifically, or hop into one of the PATH classes. As covered today, there are so many kinds of meditation, and the point really is to find the one that works for you and just begin the process of self-discovery and practice consistently. The benefits are truly endless for the mind, body, and spirit. I have seen this in my own life and so many of my clients. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, make sure to hit the share button and leave a review to support the movement. It would mean the world to me. And if you're using meditation to heal your relationship with your body, I'd love to share your story. So please DM directly to my Instagram at Sarah Ann Stewart on the gram. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, my friends, enjoy the week ahead. All right, that concludes this cast. It is my honor to always be here with you. But hang tight because I have one last thought. You're here right now because you are ready. Because while many of us share the feelings of wanting more, not everyone is willing to do what it takes to get it. But you are here. You are ready. So this is your opportunity now to take what you just learned and implement it today. Make a pact with yourself to put just one thing into action. Just one. Write it down, do it, and share it with me. We are all in this together. Thank you for being here. You too can feel awesome from the inside out.